listening to History Out Loud, chat from the stacks, a podcast by Calderdale Libraries, with Sarah Rose and Jill Carpenter. And we're joined again by Paul Weatherhead um, to talk about weird Calderdale and specifically very weird Todmorden. Um, so there's lots of tales of UFOs and um, just strange lights and weird stuff happening in the Upper Valley. So there's a couple of cases that are probably quite well known from the 1980s, but what really surprised me when I read your book was actually that strange UFO sightings go right back to the 19th century. So do you want to start sort of chronologically and tell us about some of the weird and wonderful things that happened sort of in the 1830s, I think it was, and onwards? Yes, um, I was surprised too, um, because of course, when, when people talk about UFOs and flying saucers, that's typically associated with 1947 onwards when the first sort of modern UFO sighting was. Um, I think possibly the, the place to start might be Studley Pike. Um, in, in William, William Law's poem, Wanderings of a Wanderer, that was written in 1832, uh, which talks about Studley Pike, one of the footnotes, um, the author talks about the hill Studley Pike once having a cairn there and that um, the locals said if if any of the stones on this cairn were moved, strange lights would be seen flying around the hill. So I think those are possibly the, the earliest strange lights, uh, UFOs, if you like, uh, over Todmorden. But as, as I was going through the sort of the newspaper archive, I started coming across UFOs from the 19th and early 20th century. And so th this, this was very surprising because, like I said, we associate UFOs with the late 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s and, and onwards. Um, perhaps one of the most interesting was the sort of phantom airship scare of 1909. So this, this affected the whole country. People were seeing, sometimes there were strange lights in the sky. Sometimes they saw sort of strange Zeppelin shapes. And sometimes they said they could even see people inhabiting these. And of course, the people speculated that they didn't think about aliens so much in those days. They thought maybe it's eccentric, rich people trying to invent new flying machines and they test them at night where no one uh, would notice them. But of course, these strange lights did come to Todmorden and there, there were a couple of phantom airship events in, in Todmorden. One of them was in 1909 at the same time as the huge nationwide flap. Um, this was end of July, um, and it involved hundreds of people gathering in Todmorden to look at this strange flying thing that was, you know, in the sky above the town. Uh, some people had binoculars and they said that they could actually see people in, inside this strange flying ship. What happened then, according to the paper, is the wind changed direction and that the flying machine evaporated and that all along had just been a cloud. Obviously, that, that's a pretty special cloud if it can fool so many people. But was it a case of them just seeing what they want to see after reading about all these other flying phantom airships? I'm not sure. But, but the, the phantom airships returned to Todmorden a few years later in uh, 1916. Um, and this time, every evening for a few nights in September, lots of people were gathering at 10 o'clock to watch these strange lights playing out in the sky um, in Walsden. Uh, these turned out to be searchlights, but 
according to the newspaper, they did find people who said that a mystery airship had appeared over Walston and that hundreds of people had witnessed it. So I, I was really glad that, uh, you know, I've always been interested in phantom airships. I was really glad that I found a historic case in Todmorden so that, you know, UFOs were not just <laughs> for the 80s. Um, they were for history as well. I mean, the, the best one, I think, was in the book, I've called it the glorious globe of green or the glorious green globe that happened in 1932. Um, and that was uh, a letter to uh, the local paper signed an old Ligitian. I'm not sure how you'd say that word, but <laughs> someone from Ligit anyway. Um, he says, sir, one day this year in about the third week in September, this is 1932, I was witness to a curious phenomenon. As I was walking the Royd Hills in the cool of evening, I happened to lift up my eyes onto the hills somewhere in the direction of Orkin Rocks. And to my intense surprise, I saw hanging in the heavens, a glorious globe of green. This object was semi-transparent and moving from north to south at a high pace, emitting a high-pitched whistle as it went. When it was, as far as I could judge, directly over an historic monument known as Studley Pike, it suddenly changed from green to yellow and from yellow through all the remaining longer wavelength colours of the spectrum. When it had reached a fiery glowing red, it hung for a moment motionless and suddenly fade away as a tale that is told. Um, and then he asks if you know readers could shed any light on it, and none of them could. Um, it, it's a very strange sighting, but was it some kind of atmospheric phenomenon? Was it a hallucination? Mm. Um, who knows? But uh, I haven't seen very many of those kinds of descriptions where something changes colour in that way. Almost sounds like the Northern Lights, doesn't it? It almost sounds like the Northern Lights, except for it being a globe. But I know what you mean, the, 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 the colours sound like it could be the Northern Lights. Um, and with it making a noise as well, that, that, that's the other <laughs> strange thing about it. So was there never any sort of explanation as to what these strange lights might have been? No, I, um, I, I looked to see if anyone could offer an explanation, but none were offered. Um, I mean, there were a few sightings of strange lights in the sky that behaved oddly, that, that do sound like ball lightning or some strange kind of atmospheric phenomenon. But um, and some of the witnesses to some of these said this was atmospheric or maybe it was a meteor or something like that. But they, they behave very strangely, the, the, these strange lights. And I suppose it, it, it just sort of underlines the fact that people have been seeing strange things in the sky uh, for a long time, way before the 1980s. Very creepy. I suppose like, yeah, like the way that the valley is with it being so steep and stuff, especially when it's foggy, you do see strange things. Don't, like you can Im imagine why people would see sort of strange lights or strange shapes and stuff like. Don't know. You you could do and and you atmospheric, know, I think <laughs> it could be. Yeah, it, it is very atmospheric, and you know, some people have speculated that there's a, a fault line that runs through this area called the Craven Fault, and maybe that's creating earthquake lights, or it's it's it's, it's something along those lines. Um, but again, I think these are quite sort of disputed, for, like ball lightning. They're mm. they're they're disputed, to say the least. Should we move on to the nineteen eighties? So there's mm. lots of stories starting in June nineteen eighty. I think they sort of begin with the Adamski mystery. So do you want to tell us a little bit about that? 
Zygmunt Adamski was a, a Polish miner um, who lived near Wakefield. And then on the 6th of June, 1980, the day before he was due to give his goddaughter away um, at her wedding, he went to the shop and just vanished from the face of the earth. Um, five days later, he was found uh, in Todmorden, dead near Todmorden Station on top of a pile of coal. His shirt was missing, um, his jacket and other clothes had been sort of hastily done up. He seemed pretty clean, there was no identification on him, but he also had some curious burn marks around his head and neck, uh, and it looked like there was some unidentified ointment or chemical applied to them. Um, and, and so that, that, that was the mystery of what happened to Zygmunt Adamski. And of course, the, the policeman who was one of the first on the scene was Alan Godfrey, who later went on to have uh, his own alien adventure. But yeah, the, I mean, the mystery of what happened to Adamski, uh, it's still unsolved. Uh, some people are, have come up with all kinds of explanations, and I, I don't know, maybe we, we, we can talk through some of those. Um, aliens was one of the, the, the first explanations that were given, and it's not really clear why people would suggest this was death by aliens. I mean, one reason is because Alan Godfrey had his own UFO sighting and either on purpose or accidentally the, the, the newspapers conflated these two just for, for a bit of excitement. Other people noted that uh, the surname Adamski is also the same name as George Adamski, who was uh, a famous UFO contactee from back in the 50s and 60s. So that seemed to be another uh, alien connection. It's pretty spurious. Another reason was, well, they, they couldn't identify the ointment and they couldn't tell what made the burns on, on him. And the, there was no way Adamski could have got on top of that pile of coal without anyone noticing. So that was the so-called evidence for Adamski being killed by aliens but, or by an, an abduction gone bad. Yeah, because the reason it was suspicious was because he was found on this pile of, it was like a 15 foot pile of coal and it was, it had been pouring down with rain and so, so it was like he couldn't have climbed up there and died or something. So he'd have been placed, but then you couldn't see why someone, you know, there weren't like footprints where someone had sort of taken him and dumped him. But, um, That's right. And he, he was a long way from home. It's hard to yeah. see. And he had no connection with Todman. It's hard to see why he would be there um, yeah. after five days. And I suppose we should say that he'd been alive for five days. So um, I think his death was on the day he was found, um, as, as far as they could tell anyway. There were some quite strange, as well as aliens, there were some other strange um, explanations for his death, weren't there? I think there was one that was like linked to death by acupuncture or some like acupuncture adjacent treatment or something yeah this 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 was strange and um it was detective inspector john boyle had, had suggested that he'd had moxibustion gone wrong and you, you might remember from the olympics several years ago a lot of the athletes started appearing with these sort of round red marks on them um and then that's moxibustion where they they burn a herb and then sort of cover it and then create some kind of suction. Um, so there was speculation that he'd had that treatment, it had gone wrong, that caused the burns, that sort of explains why he was partially dressed. 
but it doesn't explain why he was on 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 the pile of coal. But it's one possible explanation for for why he died. Um, well, I, I talked to Adamski's goddaughter, and she said he he was a very down to earth, you know, miner who who wouldn't really have gone in for that kind of alternative treatment. So she said that that would be very out of character. Another suggestion was maybe that was made at the inquest was maybe he was having an affair with a, an acupuncturist in Nelson. Um, you know, and, and another theory that's sort of been suggested on some of the chat boards and forums is that he, he died during sex and so was hastily dressed and then, and then dumped to avoid embarrassment. Again, his goddaughter says that's re, that you know he was a devoted family man, and that that would be completely out of out of character. So, and it's not clear what the evidence was for that. Um, certainly, the uh, the coroner dismissed dismissed those ideas. I mean, one of the other theories was death by communist, um, mm. because there had been some high profile assassinations. Um, there was the Bulgarian, it's called Georgi Markov, who was in 1978 was assassinated with a, a poison pellet shot from an umbrella, you know, very James Bond style. Um, uh, there was also um, a Bradford priest called Father Berinsky, who in, in 1953 again vanished off the face of the earth and was presumed murdered, but no one knows what happened to him. So the people were aware of this. And speaking to Adamski's goddaughter, she She's, you know, he wasn't an outspoken critic of the communist government, or, or, of the Soviet government. They would have had no reason to go after him. But she did note that, you know, he was an orphan and that they knew nothing about his background. And she said that they had speculated that he might be a spy or involved in some sort of espionage in, in the past. But that, I, I think that was just her, her speculation. If, if he was murdered, it's, it's a strange place to leave a body, isn't it? I mean, you, you'd think they'd put him somewhere a little bit more out of the way. <laughs> yeah, uh, I mean, you, you'd think they, they would hide it. Um, yeah. I mean, what you know, th th what seemed like an obvious possibility was that, you know, he was dumped into a coal lorry that mm. was delivering coal or thrown off a bridge into the into a coal lorry and maybe the coal was just delivered to Todmorden and, and he was there. But um, the, they said there were no coal deliveries that day um, and that the guy who worked in in the coal yard hadn't noticed him you know those are assumptions i mean i think after this amount of time it could easily be wrong that and that maybe there was a coal delivery that day that he wasn't aware of and maybe people don't notice stuff so maybe he had walked around all day walked around this coal yard and not noticed there was a dead body lying up there you know it's 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 hard to tell after this this amount of time yeah you um, so, wouldn't admit to it would you <laughs> no <laughs> no yeah uh, uh, it's still a mystery I mean uh, uh, two two investigators one a former policeman um, and one a UFO investigator called John Hansen and David Sankey did perhaps the most in-depth investigation in 2008 and you know they, they think there was some kind of family feud involved you know it's very prosaic explanation but there is strong evidence for family feud um, that he that he was on bad terms with a couple of relatives and uh, he'd heard that these investigators heard that Adamski had been held in a garden shed uh, for these five days. He tried to escape and he'd spilt some uh, corrosive substance on himself and, and, and that shock led to him having a heart attack. 
again, it, it's it's hearsay. There's no names. There's there's no specific evidence, but that seems to be the most down to earth explanation of what happened to him. It's some kind of family feud that got out of hand. Maybe he wasn't murdered, but maybe something happened and he died, and they disposed of of, of the body. Hmm. Yeah, it sounds a little more likely than it was the aliens. <laughs> It does. <laughs> it does, or, or that it was the Soviet Union, or that it was sex and acupuncture gone bad. <laughs> but you mentioned before part of the reason or possible reasons for the alien connection was to do with Alan Godfrey, uh, because mm. he was a policeman on the scene. Um, so do you want to tell us, uh, so Alan Godfrey's story is probably one that's the most well known for Todmorden and UFOs and aliens and things, but do you want to... Tell us from the beginning, from him being on duty and searching for cows, that's how it began, isn't it? Missing cows. Yeah, um, this was um, a rainy November, um, 29th of November, 1980, and Alan Godfrey was looking for a herd of cows that had gone missing and people had reported these cows had been walking around a, a housing estate and trampling on people's lawns. So he'd, he'd been around looking for them, um, couldn't find them. He'd gone back to the station. Um, and then when he was finishing his shift and going for one last, one last scoop around the town, driving along Burnley Road, he suddenly saw what first, he thought it was a bus at first, but um, he realized it wasn't. Um, uh, and he described it as being 20 foot across, 14 feet high, a sort of fluorescent diamond shaped craft i mean he's he's very clear that you know this wasn't like a ball of light this was a uh, a nuts and bolts to, to use his words craft of some kind with a band of windows around it and the the bottom half was was rotating so he radioed it in as i guess what that's what you should do if you see uh, an alien spacecraft but his radio wasn't working um he made a sketch of what he saw uh, you know and you can easily find that uh, online and he also heard at the same time a, a voice in his head that seemed to be saying, you should not be seeing this. And the next thing he knew, he was 100 yards down the road. His car was still moving, but slowly uh, the UFO had gone. So what he did was he, he went back to the station and got a colleague, went back to the scene where he'd, he'd seen the UFO and they looked at the ground. They, they saw some sort of swirly patterns on, on the ground. But the, the, the strangest thing they did uh, and I've never really understood why they did this was because remember, this is the very early hours of the morning, very miserable November day. Uh, they climbed over the gates into Todmorden Park. Uh, the, the park was locked at this time because it was you know, still the, the early hours. Uh, and the reason he did this, Godfrey says in his autobiography, is to look for witnesses. And I don't know what witnesses you would find in a locked park. Um, in the early hours of the morning when it's raining. Um, anyway, they didn't find any witnesses, but they did find a herd of cows. Uh, and one of the things that, that Godfrey says is that there is no, there's no way that the cows could get from the housing state where they were into the park. There, there's just no way of doing it. Um, it's like five entrances to that park. <laughs> so like there's the, the gates that are locked at the front, but then if you go up the road, there's like three different footpaths that are just open so they could have just walked around the estate well exactly and uh, you know I, I talked to um a Todmorden cow farmer and he said his cows are brilliant at escaping and walking from because they're they're prey animals they're really good at standing stock still 
in the dark and they just look like a rock or a bush or something and his cows have just gotten all over the place you know without the aid of ufos so you know i want to just wonder whether the the, the cow connection because that provides that late, little extra bit of physical evidence that's missing from from his case and i think i wonder if that's why he brought it in mm. Because it's worth saying that um, we're talking about it, but like Alan Godfrey is still about and sort of, he's not like active in the UFO community and stuff, but he's, he's like written an autobiography a couple of years ago, hasn't he? And had sort of told of his experiences and he's still very much sort of, is a believer kind of thing. Um, yeah, yeah. Uh, he, he's certainly a believer that he saw a nuts and bolts craft and that um, the, the stuff that we'll come on to about, about the aliens, he's rode back on that quite a bit in, in in recent years and in in some retellings of his story that that's completely airbrushed out of it so after this night so the next day he starts to sort of think there's other th strange things about the previous night isn't he um yeah I, I mean he noticed um that his boots been damaged there were newish boots he noticed a, a rash on his leg that on, on his foot that he hadn't noticed before it later turned out that 15 minutes was missing so he didn't know what what had happened during that missing 15 minutes and i think you know when he arrived at the station the next day he was greeted with hey up here comes captain kirk um as news of his um experience had got round and you know he was called in by his superior and he you know he expected a telling off but instead um his superior told him that three other coppers had been on the moors between Halifax and Hebden Bridge and they'd also around the same time seen a strange light in the sky and also that um, a caretaker it turned out later that a caretaker at a local school again had seen a strange light um, in the sky above Todmorden on, on that night so he was starting to feel vindicated now he had his own experience he had other policemen who'd seen a strange light and a caretaker who'd also seen the strange light um, added to that he had the other physical evidence if you like of his boot his rash um, the missing time and and the cows that suddenly appeared in the park so that I think summarizes Alan Godfrey's UFO experience in its purest form before the hypnotists got involved so there were several hypnotists that were involved, weren't there? The first hypnotist was called Dr. Blair. I think he was connected with Manchester University. Uh, and the second one was called Dr. Jaffe. And when you know these, these sessions were filmed and, and what Godfrey describes was pretty similar in all four of the, those sessions that he had, two with each. And um, he described how uh, he was beamed up in the UFO itself, in the spaceship itself, which he sort of described as being round with corners um there was an alien presumably an alien called joseph and, and and joseph was a very biblical looking figure with white robes and a beard and a skull cap um so he met joseph also on the spacecraft was a dog a big black dog Th that's pretty unusual in in the history of ufo abduction literature so uh that's strange but of course black dogs do have that role in folklore don't they um, but as well as Joseph and the black dog, there were a load of little robots that, um, that, that he found really repulsive. But anyway, he talks in his hypnosis sessions how they fitted some bracelets around his arms and legs, and then the robots plugged themselves into 
these bracelets and everything started to flash and he felt sick. And, that, and that's when the, you know, the sessions were ended. And it seems like if you see any clips online of Godfrey undergoing hypnosis, um, he's very animated. Uh, and, and so people thought this was very, very believable. So yeah, those those were the two sessions, um, the, the, the four sessions with two different hyp hypnotists that, that he underwent. This was about 11 months after his experience. They didn't know either, did they? They, they weren't told what, what no. to expect. So. They, they weren't told, they assumed that it might be a, he, he was trying to remember something that connected with a police case or something like that. Um, but yeah, they, they didn't know what to expect. Um, and, and the reaction of the two hypnotists was was very different. Uh, the first one, Dr. Blair, again, very eminent uh, hypnotist and academic, um, he was completely disinterested. And he clearly didn't believe a word of it, but he was, he just, uh, whether he was paid, I don't know, but um, he was completely disinterested. The second hypnotist, Dr. Jaffe, was gushing, saying, this is amazing, scientists need to investigate this, you know, I've never seen anything like this. So he was very positive. Turns out that Dr. Jaffe was uh, a bit of a scoundrel as at the same time he was hypnotizing Alan Godfrey, he was also getting money off one of his patients by addicting him to, uh, to an anesthetic and uh, all kinds of crazy things going on. He was sort of um, taken before the medical council in its longest ever prosecution. But yeah, th so those are the two hypnotists. Um, what, what I discovered, um, and it was, quite by chance really I was um when I was researching the first edition of Weird Calderdale and I was thinking about this chapter I was just scouting around um there used to be a second-hand bookshop and record shop in Hebden called Hydra um and I was just on Market Street I was just sort of mooching in there and I noticed some journals on the floor and one of them was from uh, Sheffield Hallam University and it was um a scientific journal but it had an article about alien abduction so I thought I'll take this home <laughs> And it turned out to be um, written by Dr. Hamilton Gibson, who was one of the country's most eminent hypnotists. So, you know, he founded the British Society for um, Clinical Hypnosis. So he's really a, one of the, the best known and most prominent hypnotists at the time. And it turned out that he had also hypnotized Alan Godfrey. This is not in Alan Godfrey's autobiography. It's not in any other account. It's completely airbrushed or ignored or just not known about. So that, that was an amazing find. It was completely, completely by luck. So I was, I was really happy with that. And Dr. Gibson came up with a completely different explanation. I mean, Alan Godfrey's tale was pretty similar, uh, except in this account, there was also a giant spotted green jellyfish in, in the UFO that wasn't mentioned. <laughs> in any of the other accounts but uh, Gibson said that you know after the session he took Godfrey aside and, and accused him of faking it you know he said he's the least hypnotizable person he's ever met it looks like he was just doing what he'd seen hypnotized subjects do on tv um, and he said at that point Godfrey became a little bit upset and started talking about various concerns that he had and what Gibson suggested was that Godfrey was suffering from narcolepsy and so a sleep disorder where you might fall asleep at inappropriate times it might also be accompanied by a feeling of paralysis or intense vivid hallucinations so that's 
an explanation that hasn't really been looked at before. And I, I think there's a lot to be said about that explanation, because when you think about Alan, when he saw the UFO, he was in his car. When the, when the UFO had gone, the car was still moving. What it sounds like to me is he fell asleep at the wheel, had a hallucination or a dream, um, and then woke up and then did the sketch of the UFO. The, you know, the, the kind of dreams that people have with narcolepsy can be very, very, very real. They, they're a hallucination. You would feel that it was really happening. And if this was the case, you would expect Alan Godfrey to have had other similar experiences. And he doesn't mention them in his autobiography. He doesn't mention them in his talks. But Jenny Randalls wrote a very hard to find book now called The Pennine UFO Mystery, where she did ask Alan about these. And he did talk about several strange encounters he had as a, as a young man. In one of them, he was 1965. He was driving a, a van one evening when suddenly he, he threw on the brakes. He was convinced that a, a woman and a dog had run in front of him. There's a dog again. And uh, he got out. There was no one there. When he got home, two hours was missing. In 1970, he took his, Alan Godfrey took his brother's dog for a walk to the park. Sometime later, the dog returned home without Alan Godfrey. And so they, they went out looking for him. They found him in the park a bit dazed. And he said he'd been talking to a friend. But the friend who he talk, who was talking to had died several years earlier. Mm -hmm. So we do have these sort of um, strange experiences, which, which to me suggests that narcolepsy is one of the most probable hypotheses to explain uh, the Alan Godfrey experience. Have you ever met Alan Godfrey or you interview him? Or... <laughs> yeah, well, um, I went to his talk in 2002 or three for the uh, Cats Protection League downstairs at the Trades Club. Um, so I asked him some questions there. Uh, again, this was before I discovered the, the third hypnotist, so I didn't ask him about that. Uh, I did ask him about his earlier strange encounters from, from the 60s and, and the 70s, and he was very, very reluctant to talk about it. And, and I think the, the problem is, if he admits that those are true, and he, I mean, he, he has gone on record saying they are true, but once you accept those, it calls into doubt his firm belief that he saw a nuts and bolts craft so I think he's very keen to brush over those do we think he still believes now that he was abducted no I don't think he does um he says that he he doesn't know why he said the things he did were under hypnosis he says he doesn't really believe it he doesn't know what to believe about it so he keeps a sort of open mind about it. He's, he's adamant that the cows couldn't have got where they did by any normal means. I mean, I, I was thinking about this the other day, but imagine if you're an alien, you, an alien and you want to study a cow, surely you'd just take one because you wouldn't want a herd of cows trampling all over your spaceship. It would be <laughs> chaos. Um, but anyway, he, he still talks about that. And in fact, in his autobiography, he adds a new piece of evidence that I hadn't heard before. Uh, he says that when he first started looking for the cows, um, uh, an old lady invited him in, uh, an old lady who he knew, in, and she told him that um, she'd seen the cows outside her window, then she saw a huge bright light, and then the cows were gone. Um, so 
what to make of that. That's just that piece of evidence suddenly appears in his autobiography and it's not mm. mentioned previously. Uh, so I, I think he's sticking to his cow story and he's sticking to the nuts and bolts story as well. I mean, the, the other bits of sort of confirming evidence that, that we hear in this case about the three police officers who saw a light and the caretaker, when you compare those stories as they were given in 19, um, originally in the early 80s with, with later reports, they're, they're, very, they're very different. Uh, the, the earliest reports by Jenny Randall's in Flying Saucer Review Journal, and then again in her 1983 book, The Pen on UFO Mystery, and then you've got Alan Godfrey's account, and they're very different stories um, in each of them. I mean, for a start, it turns out that the police officers who had seen a light saw it several days before not the same night okay. um and it's not clear what happened with the with the caretaker his his account seems to have changed depending on on who's telling it uh there, there was a a particularly um bright meteor shower at that time as well so that you know that might have been part of what explains some of those strange lights in the sky he, he was interviewed wasn't he on breakfast television by frank boff uh, David, that, Ike. David Ike, yeah. It feels that it might have just all got a bit big for him, and that's why he backpedaled. Could be, yeah. I, I mean, the, the the interview that that you just mentioned there. I mean, I wish Breakfast TV was still like that. You had Frank Boff, <laughs> David Ike, a former Doctor Who, uh, and a UFO abductee. Or, um, I don't know, I, because I think he maybe backtracked a bit on the abduction part because it just seems so comical so it, it, it could be that um, and also when you compare Alan Godfrey's abduction to later abductions when people claim to have been abducted by you know the greys who did experiments on them and so on it just seems a little quaint that there's a, a you know, an alien called Joseph who's got a beard and he's biblical and there's a dog. It just all seems very quaint compared to the sort of the, the kinds of uh, abductions we saw later in the 80s and 90s. I mean, also, I think we have to remember that he was like a policeman as well. And I think he took a early retirement, didn't he? But I mean, there's certainly some implication that he was people didn't take him very seriously after this and, you know, his colleagues and whatever, and he might have been, you know, encouraged to take early retirement. Yeah, I mean, he says he, he took early retirement based on a, an earlier injury that was un, unrelated to his experience. But, I mean, he, he also claims that he was driven out uh, of the police force, that they, he says, they planted drugs in his locker, um, all kinds, you know, all kinds of things. Um, so if you go, if you see one of his talks, uh, what happened to him in the police takes up a, a large a large part of his talk so um, th th there is all that element to it what he does say is though on one of his last days on the force he was interviewed by Keith Hellowell uh, who later on went on to be the the, the drug czar of Britain and mm. one of the things that Hellowell said to him was you know if only they had let sleeping dogs lie uh, you know and, and, and Godfrey was never really sure what he meant when he said they so that that's why he uh, called his his autobiography "Who or What Were They?" Um, now, Alan Godfrey seems to think that the pressure he got in the police force may have been as much to do with Adamski uh, and his investigations into the Adamski death as it was 
with his uh, his UFO experiences. Um, so something strange was he not invited to the inquest to the Adamski case or something, and he, he didn't know about it or something strange. It took yeah, it did. It, it took place without him him knowing about it. So that 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 does seem a bit strange. Um, a lot of researchers who have who've approached the police about the Adamski case have been have been warned off but you know it could just be that the police don't like UFO nuts <laughs> bothering them and, and asking to go through their files so uh, I really don't know that I mean the Adamski death is still unexplained and and there there must be people out there who who know something about what happened to him but on the other hand you can understand how the police might be wary that they were becoming a laughing stock with with Godfrey appearing on, on you know in the newspapers and and, uh, and also of course what we didn't say was that the newspapers connected Alan Godfrey's experience with the Adamski experience mm -hmm. and said they happened at around the same time and that sort of linked the two in a way where they weren't really linked so, you know I think really that they're, they're, they're almost two separate cases but because of Alan Godfrey's involvement in both they, they tend to be lumped together and, it's, it, and it is hard to sort of to unpick them. Yeah, because they were like six months apart. Was it like June and November or something? I think. Mm. Yeah. Um, is there anything else you want to say about Alan Godfrey? He, he had similar sort of visions in childhood, didn't he, Joseph? Yes, he, he mentioned knowing Joseph from childhood. And he also mentions being visited by a strange ball of light in childhood in his childhood. He also said cryptically after he was hypnotized in one of the sessions, they came for me before and they'll come back for me again in 10 years. And that's something I specifically asked him about um, when I saw him speak. And he uh, he said, no, they haven't come back. And he was clearly not happy to talk about anything that's not connected with the nuts and bolts UFO. Um, so I, I, th I thought that, that that was quite interesting the way he, he's trying to focus it onto the the nuts and bolts aspect. I mean, we, you know, UFO nuts often talk about nuts and bolts. Uh, I'm not, sorry, I'm not being derogatory to UFO bus by calling them UFO nuts. I, you know, I guess I'm one, albeit a skeptical one. Um, but uh, it, it's very interesting that he's focused. Try, he's trying to get the focus all on the physical aspects of it and avoiding any of the for me the more interesting psychological aspects of it of, of, of what might cause people to have these experiences yeah i guess if you're trying to prove that something happened you'd go for like physical evidence wouldn't you rather than the sort of because it's quite interesting like the whole like spirituality side of it with like the biblical references and things yeah d that's more difficult to be like put something concrete yeah on well it into... my, my my master's degree dissertation was on um alien abduction and the philosophy of religion. So I've looked in a lot of detail about how religion, spirituality sort of expresses itself through the UFO experience. And Alan Godfrey's experience doesn't fit very comfortably in that, because if you think about the history of alien abduction, you know, um, when we talked about the Halifax slasher, we talked about HG Wells' War of the Worlds. And um, that's possibly the first description of of what we think of as an alien abduction um it was so gruesome that they left it out of the novel but it was in the serialized 
version of the story that appears in the newspaper. And that's where um, a vivisectionist is taken up by the Martians and gets a taste of his own medicine. And they found him all chopped up and experimented on. Uh, it was considered so strong that they got it, got rid of it in the novel aspect, unfortunately. But throughout the, the, the 50s, um, people who met aliens, they tended to bump into them in the desert or somewhere. Uh, and the aliens were very nice. They called them Nordic, they, they look Scandinavian, they have beautiful blonde hair, and they'd take them to Venus and show them the cities and then warn them about the dangers of nuclear warfare. Um, and, and, and these contactees, as, as they were called, were very often were connected to the spiritualist movement because you know, it's, it's not a great step from channeling a spirit to channeling an alien. And it was only when abductions proper started in the early 60s with Betty and Barney Hill um, were, were abducted from their car and, and, and they underwent hypnosis. And that's where the, the modern abduction begins really. Well, I call it modern, it was mainly the 80s and 90s, but these, these abductions tended to split into two factions. On the one hand, there were the, the sort of Whitley Stryber contacts uh, cases where the aliens would do a, some unpleasant stuff, but the aliens were good. They'd warn us about, you know, pollution's bad and, and war's bad, and they'd give us all these messages. And there was some kind of spiritual aspect to it. They'd talk about raising consciousness and, 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 and how to help humanity. But on the other hand, there were the the horrible aliens who've got some nefarious purses. This is the, we might call it the Bud Hopkins school um, of alien abduction where horrible things were done to people. And, you know, they had some, they were using us to uh, to farm alien hybrid babies. Or there's usually some horrible plan. So that there is a schism, almost like a, you know, a religious schism between- Heaven and hell kind of thing. <laughs> yeah, heaven, heaven and hell. There's a kind of religious schism between uh, people who believe in alien abductions. and. Alan Godfrey's doesn't really fit into either of those. I mean, Joseph didn't give him a message about world peace or anything like that. Um, so it, it makes it a very bizarre case. Do we know if he was religious, just out of interest? Uh, no, I've, not, I've no idea if he was. No. Mm. Well, that going down a, a, a rabbit question. hole of your thesis, but yeah, it'd be quite, kind of interesting <laughs> to know, wouldn't it? Sort of what that crossover is between like believing in things. Yeah, and, and I suppose that the question also might be to what extent does belief in aliens visiting us represent a kind of a new kind of religion? Mm. Um, because often people, people who believe in aliens visiting us believe that, that they're our saviours. You know, they've come to save us from destroying ourselves. So there is that kind of religious element to a lot, to a lot of them. Yeah, and when you actually think about things like like Greek mythologies and stuff, actually, there's quite a lot of parallels, aren't they, in some of these, like, the god sort of characters and the strength and the warnings and stuff and, you know, And, and abducting humanity. people yeah. as well, yes, yeah, exactly. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. And, and people have... Uh, um, Jacques Vallée has sort of talked about how it seems to, ref to, to mirror a lot of fairy folklore where the little people might lure people or abduct people uh, as well, yeah. Mm. Was he internationally known, Alan Godfrey, in, in alien um, abduction circles? Oh yeah, I mean, um, I, I, don't, I don't know what, to what sense he would make a living from, from it, but he certainly was on the, the international UFO circuit because, you know, the, I think there's a lot of demand for 
abductees to talk about their experience. Um, so uh, he's certainly well known on the international as well as the British sort of UFO scene. Uh, I mean, he's widely regarded as Britain's first alien abduction case. So um, he certainly got that that <laughs> to his name. And there have been like alien, not alien abductions, but like UFO related incidents through Todmorden, like, you know, in later years as well. I thought there was one a couple of years later with like, uh, where disco lights were seen in the sky from Ashenhurst, I think it was. Mm. Um, yeah. Do you want to tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, that, that, that was an interesting one because um, 1982, because uh, it happened over three nights and each night, loads of witnesses, maybe as many as 100, maybe more, talked about seeing these strange lights in the sky. They described them as disco lights, um, different colours moving. One of the interesting things for me about this was that knowledge um, of the strange lights seemed to be spread by CB radio, uh, which was, which was huge, huge at the time. So it meant the press weren't involved. It was direct person-to-person -person communication, maybe one person to many people. So it, it was a new, almost a new way of communicating this information. So over three nights, people were seeing these strange lights. Um, it should be said that a, a, a UFO investigator took a photo and couldn't see anything on the photo and, and dismissed them as, as being stars or, or planets or planes heading towards Manchester Airport. But it does seem strange that, you know, hundreds of people over three nights were witness to these strange disco lights. Uh, the, the descriptions from the people, though, are very, very different. And it just sort of begs the question of whether they were seeing what they wanted to see. The, the, the other thing, the strange thing about this UFO flap um, in 1982 is people saw UFOs for three nights and then the following day, and I remember this vividly because... Um, I was a witness to it. Um, I was walking home from school and then suddenly there was a colossal explosion, a, a huge bang and uh, louder than anything I'd ever heard before. And mm. at the time, um, CND had been, the campaign for nuclear disarmament, had been distributing a pamphlet saying that the Soviet Union had a bomb aimed at Huddersfield. Um, and at the height of the Cold War, I, I like many others, I thought, wow, this is the end. They dropped the bomb. And I was looking around to see if there'd be a mushroom cloud on the horizon. I mean, I've heard that firefighters in Sorby Bridge dived under the fire engine, also think, thinking the same thing. But police were sent round looking for plane crashes or no one could find it, what, what had happened. Um, Patrick Moore got involved. He thought maybe it was a meteorite and he thought it had crashed over this area and landed somewhere in Northern Ireland. He couldn't find it. The most likely explanation, according to Sir Patrick, um, was that the military had broken the sound barrier somewhere over the Calder Valley, which they were strictly forbidden to do, and that had caused this huge explosion. Um, I think throughout the 70s, people had heard these strange explosions, and sometimes they'd been connected with Concord. But of course, it was very, it was very controversial having these low-flying military jets flying over us all the time as we did in those days because it was spooking cattle and farmers weren't happy about it. So do they think that the boom and the lights were connected and that they were all kind of military, that, that the lights were like maybe aeroplanes or the military doing low flights or something as well? That, that, that's, that's a possible explanation. It could be, it could be that. I think that obviously the, 
um, a military jet is the most likely explanation, but it's not necessarily linked with a lot. I mean, some people said this was the UFO taking off and going back to its home planet. I'm more inclined to think that the strange lights scene was um, a modern example of uh, hysteria. I'm saying it very carefully because, you know, it, people don't like to be accused of that sort of thing. But the fact that everyone seemed to describe them very differently, some described it as triangular, the colours were all different. The lights could easily have been aeroplanes going to Manchester or atmospheric phenomenon of any kind. So I just wonder whether a little bit of hysteria, a little pocket of hysteria was generated by CB radio and, and sort of spread round Todmud and the town that already by this time had a, a reputation for strange lights in the sky. But these days it happens on like terrible local Facebook groups, doesn't it? Everyone will be like, oh, what was that thing, that strange noise? And it'll have been the like people working on the railway, but you know, 40 different people will be like, oh, I heard a strange noise in Walsden. I heard one in Cornholm and, you know. Yeah, it's certainly got the, there's certainly the potential now for these kinds of things to spread faster than they ever had. Uh, the, the most recent example of a major UFO flap was in 2007, where a lot of people in Hebden Bridge started seeing strange glowing orange balls in the sky. This happened throughout the country. Uh, you know, I think it was the sun had a UFO invasion as one of its headlines. But these turned out to be um, Chinese lanterns that had become popular over the years for people to release as part of their birthday or wedding celebrations. And they, they look like a strange glowing ball in the sky that moves very unpredictably and changes direction in ways only alien technology or a balloon could. Yeah, there's strange things that like, Directly opposite my window, there's a really, really steep hill. And when I first moved here, it really freaked me out because ever so often I could see light going across the hillside. And it took me ages to work out that it was like there was a bus that went up there and just the lights were really bright, but it just and that's all you could see in the dark. Um, that's the same but, where I live as well. Yeah. here, And quite often it when they're coming down the hill at night, the lights will shine through my window and it'll go right across the curtains. Yeah. In, in a kind of strange encounters type. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, you've got to look out for the cows appearing in your backyard, yeah. I suppose. Um, I've had exactly the same experience, and I, and I think there could even be something about the shape of the hills that, you know, I've seen cars going up, um, up Heptonstall Road when it's dark or it's foggy, and you see the lights, and then suddenly they sort of zigzag to one side as it turns a corner, mm. or they turn around a corner if it's foggy, and the light sort of flares and, and changes shape in all sorts of weird and unpredictable ways. Yeah, and then you get lights sort of shining through the fog, don't you, from a distance, and it yeah, mm. it'll just yeah, it can take quite a strange atmospheric feeling. It certainly can. <laughs> Um, so as well as like Halifax slasher and aliens, there was one story that really um, just grabbed my attention in your book. And that's because it's about Square Church, which for those of you that don't know, is um, now part of Central Library, where me and Jill both work. So there's an interesting sort of haunting um, image in a photograph story from Square Church in there. Do you want to tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, this was... Um... A story that sort of went nationwide in 2005 um, and the, the 
spire from the congregational church, uh, it's all that's left of the church, was being renovated. And um, the Manchester firm that was doing it suspected that there might be rare birds nesting there. So they sent um, their apprentice up to try and take some photographs to see if they could find any. And um, this 18-year-old apprentice called Anthony Finnegan with a digital camera took some photos looking up into the spire. Um, he didn't see anything untoward when he was taking the photo, but when he looked at the photos later on the computer, he saw this strange ghostly figure. Um, uh, the figure seems to have some long hair, it's wearing a purple robe. Uh, it seems to have its arms raised as if it's making the sign of the cross. Not quite, I can't quite tell whether it's male or female from the picture, it's very blurred, um, but there is something a little bit sort of Christ-like in, in, in the figure. But So this was um, perfect silly season story, a national sensation, ghost photo taken in Halifax Church. It sort of progressed from there a little bit when uh, a lady called Linda Francis, sometimes also known as the ghost mistress, contacted the evening courier to say that she knew who that ghost was. And she said it was the ghost of the Vicar of Halifax, Dr. John Favor, uh, who's Vicar of Halifax from 1593 to 1623. And he was a renowned Puritan, um, well known for his persecution of the Jesuits. And you, you can see a bust of, of John Favor in, in Halifax Minster. He's sort of there on the wall looking stern in a very similar pose with his hand over a, a scary looking skull. The reason why Linda Francis claims that the ghost in the spire was John Favor seems to be a little more than the pose was familiar because why would a self-respecting ghost from the uh, 17th century be inhabiting uh, a 19th century ruined church isn't very clear at all but from there it sort of went weird I, I went to interview Linda Francis and she told me that she'd taken another photo in the square chapel Square Chapel Arts Centre when she went to see a Christmas concert there uh, and this photo was of the Grim Reaper so she said and it showed um, the photo had a, a musician talking to a gentleman in the audience and behind him there was a blob of light that looked a little bit like a hunched figure, maybe holding a staff, and that was the Grim Reaper, presumably coming to claim this member of the audience. Um, I actually found out eventually who this member of the audience was. He was a, a recorder. He made the instrument recorders for, for, for the band, and uh, he certainly lived for another decade or so after his visit from the, the Grim Reaper, so that, that, that wasn't too bad. Yeah, so there's no doubt that our library realistically is going to be haunted. I mean, they found a lot of, um, I think they found a lot of graves, didn't they? It was held up, the building of it, for quite a long time. Yeah. There were lots of. You've got at least um, the ghost of a bloodthirsty vicar and the Grim Reaper yeah. <laughs> kicking around. Excellent. As long as they haven't forgotten the library card. Yeah. Yeah. The fines are going to be pretty big if they're still holding yeah. on to any books. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you so much for joining us this evening. Yeah, it's been um, fascinating. Um, but yeah, so people can buy your book from the Book Corner in Hebden Bridge, can't they? From the Book Corner in Halifax and the Bookcase in oh, yeah. Hebden Bridge. Um, hopefully it will be somewhere in Todmorden soon, which seems to be its natural home. Um, but yeah, uh, so uh, it's on Amazon as well. Yeah, and hopefully we'll have some copies in the library in the next couple of weeks. 
You've been listening to History Out Loud, a podcast by Calderdale Libraries. Produced and presented by Sarah Rose and Jill Carpenter. Join us next time when we'll be discussing some of history's most severe winters. From the great frost of 1684 to the big freeze of 1963.